Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to My Haunted Life Podcast, the podcast all about the dark history behind your favorite paranormal stories. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn. And that's Podcat Lily. Good morning, goblins and ghouls, my sweet little darklings. How is everyone doing out there? I hope you are well and happy and safe. The wind here is a little bit insane at the moment, so if you hear that during recording, just ignore it. I am back! Oh my god, I am back from all of my trips. They were amazing. I still don't feel like I'm fully recovered, but I'm here, so that's something. The cats are very excited. We're home and haven't left my side, as you probably heard from the show's opener. Even Lily, the the little squeaky one, the normal podcat one, the one you hear in the beginning, and right there, has been willing to cuddle with her brother to be close to me even. It's been weird. But yeah, I got pictures. If I remember, I'll post them. My darling friend Rain took me on a haunted road trip while in Texas which apparently is my new love language so look for a whole bunch of Texas inspired episodes coming soon I have decided I am going to be doing my best when it comes to getting podcasts out every week but I'm not going to make it a guarantee. (laughs) I love doing the podcast. It makes me insanely happy. Like, so much so. I just want to make sure it's as high quality as possible. As we all know, I have a tendency to go down research rabbit holes. And that takes a lot of time. So I much rather put out less podcasts that are better written and research than quick one-offs. I might change my mind. Who knows? I'll try to keep them as regular as possible and let you know when there's going to be breaks. And, you know, maybe one day I'll actually get the website updated. How cool would that be? Also, you guys, I want to give a very special shout out to the very nice lady at the Norman Medieval Fair who saw the podcast postcards. So if you ever visit me at shows, I have little podcast postcards I send out advertising the show. Or if you ever buy anything from my other uh, website, you get usually a card as well. But she saw this card and got completely starstruck. I am completely serious. Her words. She got like so excited. She had to leave because apparently she's a very big fan of the podcast. And was so excited she couldn't talk to me. Apparently she listens to the podcast when she works nights, I guess. I didn't get a chance to really talk to her, unfortunately. Uh, Rain was luckily handling people. I think I was sewing a poppet or something. I don't know what was happening. 
And this, she absolutely made my day, possibly my whole month. And if you are listening, please send me an email and just say hi. I would love to hear from you. You were so sweet. And I feel like I didn't get a chance to talk to you. But yeah. Hi. You're, you're amazing. Thank you. I am so glad I have a witness to this. Because I, 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 I wouldn't believe it if I didn't have a witness. And I was there. If that makes sense. So, you know. On this week's episode, we are continuing the Salem episodes, finally, Woot. with The Ropes Mansion. It is a gorgeous two-storied white colonial mansion with cute little gabled windows close to downtown Salem at 318 Essex Street. The Ropes Mansion housed four generations of Ropes family members that lived and died within its walls. It saw happiness and a lot of tragedy, which makes sense why it's one of Salem's most haunted houses. And it's not even connected to the Salem Witch Trials. It might look incredibly familiar to those that are the fans of the Disney classic Hocus Pocus, The Ropes Mansion exterior was used as Allison's house. Remember that part when Max and Danny are trick-or-treating and they get into a fight and she goes and cries in a hay bale and Max has to make her feel better and they're in front of that big gorgeous house? That's the one we're talking about. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. The Ropes Mansion was built by Samuel Bernard in the late 1720s. Unfortunately, we know little about Samuel Bernard. He was a merchant who moved to Salem from Deerfield, Massachusetts. He led a prosperous life in Salem Village, marrying and remarrying on four separate occasions. Bernard's first wife, Mary, died while the couple lived in Deerfield. Rachel, Bernard's second wife, died in Salem Village in 1743. Bernard remarried to Elizabeth Williams, who died in 1753. Bernard's fourth wife, Catherine, also lived with Bernard at the Ropes Mansion although obviously it wasn't called the Ropes Mansion yet, until Bernard's death in 1762. It is safe to assume that Rachel and Elizabeth perished on the property. And just starting out, some people believe that their spirits linger on the property. In 1768, Judge Nathaniel Ropes purchased the house from his nephew, Samuel Bernard. Ropes was a Harvard graduate and became a wealthy attorney with a pretty prestigious career. But he was apparently very, very unpopular. Ropes represented 
Salem in the colonial legislature and later served on the governor's council. Roach was even a judge for the inferior courts of common pleas. By 1772, Ropes was appointed to the Supreme Court of Ditch, I can't say that word, Ditchature, an impressive appointment as this appointment was the highest court in the colony. So remember, this is all colonial at this time. It's not the U.S. It's under all British rule. And Ropes was a loyalist. For my non-American listeners, or for those that missed that part in school, loyalists were American colonists who remained loyal to the British crown during the American Revolution. Often also referred to as Tories, royalists, or kingsmen. They were in opposition of the colonialists or patriots who supported the revolution. So our man ropes supported the British during the American Revolutionary War. That didn't sit well with a lot of the people of Salem Village, drawing a lot of ire after some tax controversies. Probably sounds familiar for any student of history. Judges were paid by elected representatives of the general court, making them partial to colonial interests. So they're getting paid by the British. The British therefore proposed that the crown pay them their salaries directly, hoping to make them side with the crown even more. The colonists infuriated that the crown would further impose themselves upon colonial life, demanded that the judge reject the royal salaries. Indeed, the colonists declared that any one of them who shall accept it and depend on the pleasure of the crown for his support, independent of the grants and acts of the General Assembly, which would be the colonial side, would discover to the world that he is not a due sense, he has not a due sense of importance of an impartial administration of justice, that he is an enemy of the Constitution, which technically wasn't out yet, and has it in his heart to promote the establishment of the arbitrary government in the Providence. In other words, judges were being paid by the British government for them to settle in the Brits' favor, and when colonists found out about this, they expected the judges to turn down the money to show that they weren't partial to the British government. If they didn't, they were enemies to the revolution. It's a lot of politics going on right here. Robes did agree to deny the salary, but he still held loyalist views and was pretty ex- outspoken about it. This continued to infuriate the colonists, but there was another reason as well for the colonists to hate ropes. Ropes had smallpox. In fact, 
Salem Village was overcome with smallpox. According to the CDC, smallpox was a serious infectious disease called by the viral virus. And I'm going to go into some details, so this is your warning. It was contagious, meaning it spread from one person to another. People who had smallpox had a fever and a distinctive progressive skin rash. So this this is the squirmy kind of bit. Maybe skip ahead a little bit if you need to. Smallpox would start as a rash in the shape of small red spots on the tongue and in the mouth. These spots changed into sores that would break open and spread large amounts of the virus into the mouth and throat. And the person continues to have a fever. Once the sores in the mouth start breaking down, the rash appears on the skin, starting on the face and spreading to the arms and legs, and then the hands and the feet. Usually it spreads to all parts of the body within 24 hours. The virus could spread if the person coughed or sneezed and droplets from their nose or mouth could spread to other people. They would remain contagious until their last smallpox scab fell off. By the fourth day, the skin sores filled with a thick opaque fluid and often have a dent in the center. They look very pimply. Once the skin sores fill with fluid, the fever may rise again and remain high until scabs form over the bumps. The sores become pestules, sharp, raised, usually round and firm to the touch like peas under the skin. These scabs and the fluid found in the patient's sores also contained the virus. This virus could spread through materials and through objects contaminated by them, such as bedding or clothing. This is what happened to a lot of indigenous people in the U.S. After about five days, the pustules began to form a crust and then scab. By the end of the second week, after the rash appears, most of the sores have scabbed over. Most people with smallpox recover, but about three out of every ten people with the disease die. Smallpox survivors have permanent scars over large areas of their body, especially their faces, and some are left blind. So that's still 30% of people who don't survive. That, that's, that's a large number. I got curious, and since we're talking about Salem, I couldn't help but wonder if smallpox was in Salem during the witch trials. Since apparently it's been around for some time, with Egyptian mummies being found with smallpox scars. And the answer was yes. 
I found this on the Salem Witch Museum website. Seriously, one of my new favorite sources. It states, One very clear example of the relationship between disease and witchcraft suspicions is the accusation of Martha Carrier during the Salem Witch Trials. Sometime between 1684 and 1689, Goodwife Carrier and her husband Thomas moved from Balerica. There's probably some weird Massachusetts uh, pronunciation of that, and I'm sorry. To Andover. Shortly after they arrived, a smallpox outbreak began in the Carrier family, and 13 townspeople died. Among them, seven members of the carrier's family. Her father, two brothers, two nephews, one sister-in-law, and one brother-in-law. It's a lot. Many in the community blamed the carrier family for the outbreak, a grievance that was not soon forgotten. In 1692, when witchcraft accusations began to spread from Salem Village across Sussex, that's hard to say right now, County, Martha Carrier, Carrier was the first person to be accused in Andover. This innocent woman, who accusers claimed the devil had promised would be the Queen of Hell, was hanged in August, on August 19th, 1692. So remember, Salem, the Salem witch trials spread to the other countries or counties around them. So this is, you know, like, I don't know, five to ten years before it even started and people remember this. Oh, after all the family death they went through so sad thanks to the success of vaccination the last natural outbreak of smallpox in the united states occurred in 1949 in 1980 the world health assembly declared smallpox eradicated and no cases of naturally occurring smallpox have happened since so there's that. But inoculations were hard to come by in revolutionary era Salem. Sources were either scarce or overpriced. And as I mentioned, tempers were high. Not being able to get the inoculations actually incited a marblehead crowd to set fire to a smallpox hospital in retaliation. Seems a little counterintuitive. Historian Andrew M. Werman detailed the account in the Boston Globe, writing that, on the surface, such an attack might seem inhumane or at best ignorant, but the act was calculated, was the calculated result of long-simmering anger over the cost and politics of smallpox inoculations in one of the largest and most prosperous 
towns in the colonies. The majority of Salemites could not afford the inoculation. Those who could afford the vaccine were suspected of infecting Salem Village. That jump in logic is amazing. Salem voted to cease inoculation at their hospital with the FET's annuals starting, stating that there was great excitement here against inoculation for smallpox. The accessibility of the smallpox vaccine may have even contributed to the attack on Nathaniel Ropes. If Ropes had been inoculated, as he could afford, he may have spread the infection to those less fortunate. And we thought the vaccine argument now was bad. <laughs> so, Ropes doesn't have a lot going for him with the colonists at this point. Even though he denied his salary from the Brits, he was still very outspoken on his loyalist views. And now all this inoculation talk, things were going to explode. On March 17th, 248 years ago, a word, as word spread about Judge Rope's condition, a rumor went around town that he had received a special inoculation sent from England. Already enraged about the unfair taxes that were going on, his loyalist views, now he's getting the inoculations, and there's a chance he, they believe that he's spreading it to them. A large mob gathered around his house to protest. As the colonists gathered around his house, they pelted his house with rocks and sticks and mud. And it, this guy is like sick in bed and his house is getting attacked. The colonists demanded that Ropes renounce his allegiance to the British crown, but he never had a chance. He died the day after his house was attacked. He was only 47. Although it's uncertain if the mob caused his death, the Ropes family felt that it definitely hastened his infection at the very least. Some of the things I read said the mob never actually got into the house. They just stayed outside yelling absurdities and throwing stuff. I also read bits where there were theories that people snuck into the house and killed them, killed him. But I think that's mainly just legend from what I found. So just imagine the amount of stress this man is under. He's in the minority through, though financially well-backed, <laughs> in a heated political fight that's becoming very dangerous to the point where your home is literally being attacked. 
and I believe his family was in the home as well at this time. And you are so sick, you cannot do anything to help them because there's this horrible epidemic taking out his region. His body just probably gave up on him. That's a lot. They say one of the reasons a person can become a ghost and haunt a place is if a person dies in distress. And I don't think you can get much more distressed than that. People have reported seeing Nathaniel throughout the house, especially when they start renovating. Rick and Georgette Stanford, former caretakers of the mansion, claim to have caught Nathaniel Ropes on film. The image was taken during an insurance appraisal and reveals two hands of a man seated on a couch. So I'm like assuming like when you sit on a couch normally and your hands just go down by your sides and just rest on the couch. I'm picturing something like that. Robert Cahill published the photo in his book, New England's Ghastly Haunt, writing that here the judge sits for a spell on the front hall couch. After all, if you're wandering around the mansion for over 200 years, you'd want to sit for a while, wouldn't you? Apparently, this is where Nathaniel Ropes and John Adams argued politics over lunch in 1769. So, that's kind of cool. Now, you guys, I searched for this photo. I could not find it anywhere digitized. You can buy the books online. And I almost did, but something about the name Robert Cahill sounded very familiar. He is apparently the one I talked about with Rachel Christone, educator, director of education at the Salem Witch Museum. He came up when we were talking about the Giles Corey curse and how the story seemed to have started with Cahill. To paraphrase, when Corey was being crushed to death, he supposedly cursed the sheriff and all sheriffs thereafter of Salem to die in office. Cahill was apparently sheriff and he investigated the story supposedly finding that all Sussex County sheriffs as far back as he could trace either died in office of heart problems or retired due to an ailment of the blood. In 1978 Cahill suffered from a rare blood disorder himself and he retired from being sheriff after he suffered a heart attack and stroke so here's what i talked about with rachel thought he was right well and, and then kind of worse my two cents in about the curse of Giles Corey. yes please please that please is one of those myths that is definitely not true <laughs> there, it is so made up by somebody in the 20th century it is hilarious uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy things about the Salem Witch Trials, mm-hmm. but that one is, we know exactly who made it up and when, so Ooh. I always have to throw that in. Can I ask who and when? I would love to know this. So let's see, it's, what's his name? Robert, it's not Cahill, Cahill. 
Um, so he's okay. a folklorist, and uh, he, he's writing books uh, about folklore and folk tales in the 20th century, and he writes this elaborate story about how all the sheriffs of Salem yes. since Giles Corey's time have died, and that's also not true. There's a couple of, uh, in a row of um, sheriffs dying in the, of heart disease at some point or another, but that's, it's not like you can trace every person from 1692 to the modern day. And um, the whole story is based on the idea that when Giles is being pressed to death, he says to the sheriff, I curse you in all of Salem. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence to suggest he said that. There's not. It's not in any primary source documents. The first time you see that is in the 20th century with Robert Cahill. And we also have to think logically, if a man is being crushed to death, is yes. he going to be able to form that full of a sentence? Probably not. So, so yeah, I wasn't too worried about, about buying one of his books for research reasons. That being said, I still kind of want some. That being said, there's like 30 of them. He just wrote and wrote and wrote. Maybe. Maybe. Nathaniel is not the only Ropes family member to haunt the mansion. Over 60 years later, more tragedy came to the Ropes mansion. In 1839, Abigail Ropes, whose nickname was Nabby, met her tragic end. Abigail was a relative of Nathaniel, but how she related it to him seems to have caused some confusion. Legend has it that she was his wife, and others say it's his daughter. But it appears that neither of those are actually true. Our Nathaniel did have a daughter named Abigail, but she passed away in 1769 from possibly smallpox. Maybe another spirit in the house. Abigail's father is a Nathaniel Ropes, but it appears he died in 1806. So, maybe she's a niece or a granddaughter. I really wish they would stop naming their kids after themselves because it gets really confusing genealogy-wise. Either way, somehow related. Another Ropes family member. And she was living in the mansion. I couldn't find much about her life. Her obituary described her as, though mixing little in general society, she was interested in all the passing events in life. I mean, same. I love to know what is going on and hearing all the gossip, but actually mingling? Mm, that's kind of a hard pass for me sometimes. But now, all I want to do is spill tea with Ghost Abigail at the mansion. Oh, possibly a lovely tea party in the gardens. And now that's all I'm focusing on. Sorry. But I digress. I search for this obituary way too long and could only find quoted small pieces in books and articles. I would love to find all of it if anybody has seen it. What we do know 
is that Abigail met a horrific end. One night, she was carrying coals from one room to another when it appears that one of the coals either rolled onto her skirt or she got a little too close to the fireplace. Abigail's dress ignited, quickly consuming her in flames. People in the house were able to put her out, but she would never recover. I read in one place that Abigail was prone to outbursts, frequently yelling at her servants, so her screams initially were ignored by the people in the home because she thought they just thought she was having another outburst. Imagine screaming for help as you were being burned to death just to be ignored. It's horrific. Portraits in the public buildings in Salem memorialized her death, establishing that Abigail died unmarried from burns received when carrying coals from one room to another. Now, this type of death was not uncommon for women at the time. Crinoline is what was worn under the skirts to make it poofy. It was commonly made from horsehair fabric and whalebone, so basically tinder. It was reported that between 1850 and 1864, at least 39,927 women worldwide had died in crinoline-related fires. Although flame-retardant fabrics were available, those were thought unattractive and were unpopular, so they weren't used a lot. Crinoline horror stories are rampant throughout history. If it wasn't fire, there are so many stories of crinolines getting tangled up with carriages and horses and women being trampled to death. You know, death for fashion. Abigail's official obituary gives a little more details. Abigail reported the Salem Gazette succumbed to a distressing illness of three weeks caused by her clothes accidentally taking fire. Three weeks this poor thing suffered from burns and probably infection. Three weeks! That, oh, it just breaks my heart. It completely makes sense that Abigail haunts the Ropes Mansion. And her specter is reported pretty frequently. And she's rather terrifying. Visitors to the Ropes Mansion claim that they hear the sounds of Abigail's agonized screams through the house. Some say they can even see her, especially looking out the blue room on the second floor where she passed, looking out the window into the garden. And then there are the fires, devastating fires. Fires have been known to break out in the Ropes Mansion since Abigail's death. One of the fires happened in the early 1890s. 
it gutted an entire addition to the house. Some believed a disgruntled worker set the house on fire in retaliation of being fired. Then again, in August 2009, the Ropes Mansion caught fire. This time, the third floor attic was being renovated. The plaster ceilings were destroyed, as were the carpets and wallpaper. Yet the employees of the Ropes Mansion swiftly responded, saving the majority of the home's artifacts. Artifacts including the largest surviving collection of Chinese exported porcelain in the country, more than 300 pieces in all, a 1890 silver spoon engraved with a witch, a 1865 wooden cup from Salem's Jonathan's Corwin's house, and a posthumous portrait of Abigail. In other words, a portrait of Abigail painted after her death. Sometimes of her likeness as she's dead. Because they didn't have photography to remember their loved ones. It is suspected that the fire sparked from a heat gun that had been used in an exterior renovation. Now, of course, it makes sense that a home from the 1700s would be a little more at risk from fire during renovations. But it is well reported that spirits do have a tendency to strike out and start causing problems during re renovations to the house that they are haunting. I mean, a lot of people don't handle change well, but it must be even worse as a spirit that literally no one can hear your protest unless you do something like set it on fire. I have a tendency to lean towards the fires being caused by Abigail, mainly because it's just a really good story. Now, there are 150 years of Rope's family that lived and died in the house. Rachel and Elizabeth Bernard, Samuel's wives, probably died in the house as well, and some people believe they have been seen around. I really couldn't find anything other than that. I had, didn't see any specific sightings or stories, but it has been stated that people believe they're still around. Elizabeth Ropes Orn is another one who died in the house. Elizabeth died at 24 of tuberculosis as the wealthiest unwed woman in Salem. One thing about having a 150-year-old family home means that the family is going to accumulate a lot of stuff, and those items can be links for the spirits as well. The room that Elizabeth died in has she shell, she shells. That's so hard to say right now. She had collected gracing the mantle but also her medicine box and her and an aunt's recipe for 
a cough remedy, which is really sad to think, considering she died from tuberculosis. The house also has mourning jewelry from the family members on display. A lot of times, mourning jewelry at the time was made from hair of the deceased loved one. This would be a great way to connect to the family spirits. There are accounts that the mansion's garden is likewise haunted. Visitors claim to feel the icy touch of an unseen spirit or hear the whispers of the disembodied voice. Many believe this to be Abigail, which I'm not 100% sure on because the mansion's, I'm sorry, the garden didn't go in until 1912, way after her death. Not saying she's not an intelligent haunt that wanders the area, but another candidate is the garden's longtime keeper. Andy Bai. Bai was employed at the Ropes Mansion in 1931 and oversaw the garden until 1994. That's over 60 years he worked in this garden. And his employment only ended upon his death. And people have seen him out there still tending to his gardens where he literally spent a majority of his life. But, man, that sounds amazing. I'd be down for gardening in the afterlife. Although the Ropes Mansion has been renovated and even relocated, the exterior of the two-story home matches its 1894 reconstruction. The Georgian property which was then remodeled in the colonial revival style. With the most significant renovations occurring to the property's interior, colonial aspects were introduced alongside modernized appliances. The doorway was likewise replaced with a three-dimensional design by Asher Benjamin. In 1907, the Ropes Mansion was gifted to the trustees of the Ropes Memorial for public benefit, who added the large garden in 1912. Today, the Ropes Mansion is owned by the Peabody Essex Museum and still houses all of the four generations of Ropes family's furniture and collectibles and is open for tours. Although I did read in one place they are closed during the winter months. The garden is still open year-round. I got to visit this and we didn't realize what it was. I didn't get to go in the house because it was closed. And I think it was closed for renovations. But we wandered the gardens and we didn't even realize where we were. Um, the friends I went with, one of them hadn't seen Hocus Pocus. So we did do the Hocus Pocus tour. I didn't get it, and I'm very sad. But I have pictures of the garden! So, but we went in September. A little past its prime, but it was still gorgeous. 
I said earlier that the exterior of the house was used in the movie Hocus Pocus as the home of Allison. Oh, the inside shots were done in a studio, sadly, but considering how much stuff is in there, they probably wouldn't have room for a big filming location. They would have to have been careful not to do anything to the house. It would have been so sad if Abigail would have burnt down production. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. If you're interested in more pictures, info, and my sources for this week's episode, make sure to check out my website, myhauntedlifepodcast.com. I swear, it's coming. It's getting better. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We have one more Salem story coming, and it's fun. It was one of my very favorite locations to visit when we got to go out there. I'm very excited to share it with you. If you have a ghost story to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com and make sure to tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth goes a long way. You can also follow My Haunted Life Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Also, if you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And until then, stay haunted. <laughs>